eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When I was picked first, uh, you know, it, it was, a, it was a, an incredible moment because obviously it's a life-changing moment. I mean, you got to go from being a kid, like I say, who had $40 in his bank account when I went to the draft, but I thought I was rich, uh, to walking away there with, with a, a lot of money, more money than I ever dreamed of having or ever wanted to have. Welcome to another episode of Latard on Location. I'm your host, Steve Latard. And folks, when you spent more than 20 years of your life traveling the road, first as a NASCAR crew chief and now as an analyst for NBC, you are bound to meet some interesting characters along the way. The goal of Latard on Location is to bring you closer to some of the personalities I've connected with. And pre-2020, we used to do it in some great locations, but it's COVID era, so my location, once again, is my house in Cornelius, North Carolina. And I'm very pumped about my guest today. My guest today was a standout basketball star at UNC, played underneath famous coach Dean Smith, first overall pick in the NBA draft in 1986, a five-time NBA All-Star, a huge motorsports fan, so much so that the number he wore while playing in the NBA was a 43 as a nod to Richard Petty. His number was retired by the Cleveland Cavaliers in 1997. He's a winning car owner and accomplished TV analyst and now a teammate of mine at NBC Sports, Brad Doherty. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. Hey, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Man, listen, so when I think about people and think about conversations, I, I, I you know, normally we can cover the gamut. But your life has covered such a wide variety, it will be impossible to cover everything. So, but I have so many questions for you today. It, it, it's amazing. Um, man, you've done a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff yeah. in a life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Steve, growing up in, in North Carolina there, uh, I'm from the little town of Black Mountain, North Carolina, up in Western North Carolina. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a rural kid. I'm a farm kid. So... I, I grew up around tractors and machines and, and hot rods and all those types of things. But as you know, living in the state of North Carolina, our, our state bird is NASCAR and college basketball. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I grew into this big old body and I, I knew that uh, uh, it was going to be difficult for my parents to send me to, to college, uh, you know, financially. So uh, I played sports and I ended up being, I was a really good baseball player. I actually had a lot of baseball scholarships as well, uh, but ended up basketball wise, having a chance to go to school. And to be honest with you, I wanted to go uh, to school and play basketball just so I could go for free. Right. I never had aspirations to play uh, pro basketball. I, I really thought I was going to be a race car driver, uh, which is, I know, I know, that's crazy. I love that and, though. If you'd have seen me over the last decade and a half racing late models and banging my forearms into the dashboards and hitting my back, you'd laugh. But I love racing and I always have. And, you know, my dad uh, was just a huge race fan. Uh, we started out, my uncles were drag racers. And, you know, we, we spent a lot of time going back and forth down to the Greer Dragway and we would, you know, whenever we'd go to these little podunk 
racetracks all throughout South Carolina and places in North Carolina and drag race. And my uncles had great hot rods and, and, you know, they were shade tree mechanics and worked on motors and stuff out in the backyard in the dirt and changed oil and transmission fluid in the dirt. And we were just kids. It's just what we did. And we played every sport and we worked on cars and uh, it just started there. And I fell in love with, with hot rods and cars and basketball and, and all that stuff all kind of at the same time. It's amazing. So, you know, I, I asked this of race car drivers. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with Dale Jr., Jeff Gordon. And, you know, so I'm going to ask it to you, another very successful professional athlete. At what point, you said you just wanted to go to college for free. At what point playing at UNC did you say, you, you know what, I, I'm, I have it. I don't mean what people were telling you. When did you look yeah. in the mirror and say, oh, yeah. I got it. Like, I can yeah. be a pro athlete. Yeah, the, the, the time it hit me, was there was two moments. Uh, one was my sophomore year. Uh, you know, I went to North Carolina. I was only 16 years of age. Right, I read that. Young. Yeah, so I'm an October guy. And, I, you know, I just had my driver's license. So I'm going to Chapel Hill, and I step onto this college campus as a freshman. And my peer group, you know, they're 18, 19. I'm 16 years old. And so it was it – was, I knew I could – could perform academically but socially there was going to be a huge adjustment for me even though I was this big old guy I was 16 years old so uh being around Dean Smith I had the great fortune obviously to go to school play for him and having him as a mentor my freshman year at North Carolina it was just really fi figuring out who I was I mean I was a good player and I could play and so after I got through my freshman year and understood what was expected of me the 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 the, re the the reasoning came to me in the summer that summer of my sophomore year going into my sophomore year we used to play pickup games uh the legendary pickup games at carmichael uh, auditorium which is the old place where we played basketball and all of the nba guys from north carolina you know whether it was walter davis and mitch kupchak and dudley bradley and phil ford all these guys would come back and play and they would play with us, the guys who were there. And then we'd have guys from Duke come over and play. And so, you know, at the time, Michael Jordan and James Worthy were the guys that were running these games. <laughs> and, you, you know, you, you so you wanted to be on their team because Michael was so darn competitive, even in the summertime, that he did not want to lose. And James was just unbelievable as a player. So you, you wanted to try to get on their team so you could play a lot. And – it came down one – it was I can it was like a Thursday. We were playing. We played every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. One Thursday we were playing, and I got there late, and everybody was playing. So I was left to pick my own team because I was the only guy there. So I picked a couple guys, and we went out and we played. And it's the first time I played that summer. And I had grown into my body, and I would gotten stronger and faster. And we played against Michael and those guys. We absolutely killed them. And they, they could not stop me. And – at that moment, I realized I belonged at this level. And so the summer went on, and uh, all these NBA guys came, Kurt Rambis, and all these guys from the Lakers came down to play. And I never will forget, I was playing against Kurt Rambis, those guys, and I was absolutely killing him. Now, this, these guys are playing in the NBA. Right. I was absolutely killing these guys. They, had, they, had, they could not stop me. And, and it's that summer I realized, you know what? I may be able to, to turn this into something if I want to. So we get to the end of my junior year, and Coach Smith calls me into his office, and he says, I need to talk to you. And he said, uh, you know, Rad, he says, you've developed into just a, a 
an unbelievable basketball player. And he says, I think you're mature enough. He says, I, I think you need to consider going into the NBA draft because I think you'll be a top five draft pick. And I, I thought he was talking about after my senior year, but he was talking about then. And I looked at him and I said, coach, I said, man, I said, are you kidding me? I said, I've got, I got free food because I eat on the training table like eight times a day. I play basketball in Chapel Hill. I got every pretty girl in the state of North Carolina trying to date me because I play basketball in Chapel Hill. Why in the world would I want to leave this? And he started laughing. He says, you would say that. So uh, <laughs> I, I realized after that as well that I, I had a good opportunity. And that my mind, you know, as I matured, I started to realize this is my opportunity to, to, to follow a passion that I'm starting to develop. And then it was really after my junior year, in college, I became really, really serious about being a professional basketball player. That is spectacular. A pickup <laughs> game with Michael Jordan. I guess it's like if you go to the go-kart track with Jeff Gordon, you can keep up. Maybe at that That's point right. you decide right. you're going to be a, a go-kart guy. Um, and free food for seven-foot athletes. Are you I mean, kidding me, man? I mean, that's going to be 10,000 calories. Oh, every day? All I can eat? Where do I, what do I need? I had 40 bucks in my bank account. I had all the food I could eat. Where do I need to go? This oh, I love it. Uh, so let's so so um, tell me about this. So so the drafts, uh, yeah. NBA, NFL. Yeah. I mean, those are moments in today's sport. You know, ten years oh. ago, fifteen years ago, either I was younger or they weren't such a big deal. They're a big deal for the players and the teams. I don't want to discount it, but it wasn't broadcast like it is now. I mean, the NFL right. draft now is is a is a weekend long affair. Yeah. Um, so we see these players. Uh, yeah. Get the opportunity, get the moment, get the break that they're drafted. Well, you not only were drafted, but you were numero uno, first yeah. guy up. Yeah. Um, that had to be a moment. I mean, I knew oh. you you thought you could do it, but but you're talking about the the best collegiate player to be drafted, the first one yes. out in 1986. Yeah, it, uh, it, it it's really interesting because I, I'm a like I say I'm, I'm just a, a country kid, and so being around Dean Smith, his big thing was psychologically developing you. He always would say, you know, you're going to physically, I, I can't teach height. You know, you, you are what you are, but physically or but mentally he always worked and he'd always played these games with us mentally. And he had us all figured out in a side story before I get to the draft. You know, it, it was interesting. I, I sat and talked to coach Smith one time after I graduated and, you know, we became, became mentor and friend instead of coach and player. And I was asking him just about his philosophies. And he's like, you know, he says, you have to treat people. You have to coach people uh, as if they're all equal. He says, because if you don't, he says, that slight will have make the lesser player uh, not feel like he's working hard enough, and it'll make the better player feel like that he's not being appreciated. And they, but he says, but you have to know individual talent. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, you know, you, you're a great example. This is another Michael Jordan story. He said, if I told Michael Jordan that, he couldn't hold his breath for 12 minutes. He said Michael Jordan would be sitting there with snot bubbles blowing out of his nose, trying to hold his breath for 12 minutes. He said, if I told Brad Darty that he couldn't hold his 12 minute breath for 12 minutes or try to do that, Brad Darty would laugh at me. I said, you're exactly right. He said, but if I told Brad that I want you to run through that wall and that wall will give way, I promise you, but in the end, it's going to be for the betterment of your team, you'll do it. I said, yeah, I, I probably would do that. So just that psychological 
thing. So as I got to be a senior at North Carolina, I knew I was really, really good. And my mindset is when I, when I played against great players like Len Bias or, or Mark Price or those guys, and it was a big game, it was never too big a game because I knew at the end of the day they had to deal with me, no matter how good they were. So when the draft came around, uh, I had an idea that I would be either the first or second pick. Uh, you know, I thought that Lynn Bias may be the first pick because he was just a raw athlete. I mean, he was a bad, bad dude. Uh, and so I could see that. But I knew outside of that, that that I would be first or second pick. So when I was picked first, uh, you know, it, it was a it was a, an incredible moment because obviously it's a life-changing moment. I mean, you got to go from being a kid, like I say, who had $40 in his bank account when I went to the draft, but I thought I was rich. Uh, to walking away there with with a, a lot of money, more money than I ever dreamed of having or ever wanted to have. Uh, so that was that was life changing, uh, and it was an incredible experience. And, and you realize right away, you know, when you're the number one pick, you look back on those things. As you're the number one pick because you're really good, but you're also going to a really bad team. So you better be prepared. You better be prepared. Yeah, that is that is true. I never looked at that way, but you're absolutely right. Those great teams—they're not picking early. They're not no, picking, they ain't early. picking early. Uh-oh. Uh, talking to Brad Doherty, uh, NBA All Star, NBA player, successful car owner. Brad, we're going to get to NASCAR, your love of racing, uh, right. winning as a car owner. So much conversation I want to have, but I want to touch on basketball for just a minute because. Um, we're going to have a conversation about how NASCAR has changed, but I want your perspective on how the NBA has changed. So you played sure. in an era. Um, now, I'm going to go on record to say you can hate me, but I'm a New England guy, so I've been a Celtics fan my whole life. Oh, I can't help man. It. But, <laughs> but, you know, you played in an era where a good contract, a great contract was, I don't know, three, four, five, maybe $6 million. Yeah. And I bring that up because in today's world of the NBA, and I'm not going to claim I'm an analyst. I don't know the sport anywhere near as well as – uh, you know it, but you know there are twenty, twenty-five million dollar contracts for non-starters. For oh, six men. guys can't play dead in the western. You got guys can't play dead in the western, making twenty million bucks. So, so I'd love to just get your perspective. You know, is sure. that is that necessary? Sure. Is that good? Is that bad? As that young kid that was the number one pick, can you imagine yeah. what it would be like to be the number one now and get? You talk about more money. The the amount of money these guys are getting is oh, unbelievable. It's a hundred million bucks just for doing nothing. It's a hundred million bucks. But yes, it's great, Steve, and I'll tell you why. Um, and I and Charles Bar, talk Charles Barkley, he's my buddy. I play golf with him. Don't ever do that. But he 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 goes on and on about the the young guys and the games change and all that. But this is why it's great. And this is the thing. I had a I actually had a conversation with Bill France Jr. when he was still alive about this very thing. Uh, it's the way the NBA is set up with revenue sharing. And it's something, and, and Bill Jr. did not like the conversation, by the way. He was not a fan <laughs> of, of this conversation. But he was picking my brain, so I, I let him have it about his sport. Uh, you know, the way it's set up in the NBA, and this all, another Michael Jordan story, uh, we all owe him a tremendous debt of gratitude. And I'll tell you why. Uh, back in 1988, uh, our collective bargaining process was uh, beginning to – it had come to an end. So now we're renewing our contracts uh, as a league and as a union. And so what the league said was, okay, uh, NBA has, has turned around. This young man, Michael Jordan, has taken the league, and we're back on television. We're back in the spotlight. We're you know, anticipating revenues going up 100%. So 
Uh, we're all happy with that. And we're going to share a little bit of money with the players and, and so forth, so on. So when they said that, they threw the number out. And like, you know, 30% of the revenue will go to the players and 70% will go to the owners because the league basically represents the owners. And so, uh, you know, we were all really excited because that was going to mean a huge check for all of us at the end of the year. Uh, and it hadn't happened before. But uh, Michael stepped in and said, no. He said, uh, I want it to be 50-50. Okay. And the league was like, well, you're out of your damn mind. There's no way. You know how much money that is? And he said, I'm going to continue to carry the torch for this league. And five years from now, it won't be a 100% revenue gain. It'll be a 1,000%. And we'll still be stuck at 30%. You guys will be stuck at 70%. You'll be making billions of dollars. And, yeah, we're still making millions, but we're, we want to have an equal partnership. So they said no. So Michael said, okay, that's fine. I'm going to take my likeness back, and I want my like likeness back as an independent organization, independent brand. Uh, I want to split off from the league. And so the, the now Jumpman logo, the 23 and all that, uh, Jordan, I want it back. The league came. This went on for like six months. The league came back and said, okay, this is what we'll do. We'll give you your name because it's your name and your number, but we actually own the number, but we keep the bulls in your number. We'll split it and we'll, we'll go head to head. And so a real contact test ensued. Well, Michael didn't, he didn't cave. And so they came back and they said, you realize that if we give you guys 50% of the revenue that you all have to take the same amount check wise. They're like, we can work a deal with you and you could make an extra 50 million a year forever. All right. And everything else stays status quo, or we'll do your 50 50 deal and you'll share it with the other 300 basketball players. He said, I want to do that. Wow. So that's where it started. And so from that day forward, we've got a 50 50 revenue split in our collective bargaining process. And what's happened is, with the TV contracts, as you know, they're unbelievable. You know, they're billions and billions. So we share directly and the owners share directly. So now if you bought a basketball team, just like Michael bought the Hornets, the Bobcats, I think he paid $380 million for the team or something like that. It's now worth a billion six. It's worth a billion six. All of these basketball contracts are now guaranteed 100%. And the minimums have been set. And these guys are making, who don't play, 10, 15, $20 million. And it's going to continue to do that. And that's where we could be one day, I hope, in NASCAR. That's where we've got to get to as a business model. We have to revenue share and not be these independent. We're all independent contractors. I, they can, you know, the RTA and all that stuff is great. But we don't really have a commodity, Steve. You know it. I know it. And in times like this, it is scary to be a NASCAR owner. So that's where I want to go next. I, I mean, that, that's amazing um, to hear that story for the NBA. So I, I just want to go on record to say that I am a believer that greatness should be rewarded, hard work should be rewarded, and that's either in business or in sports. If you've been given the God-given ability to shoot a basketball, to throw a football, to run a 100-yard dash, to kick a soccer ball, whatever it may be, to drive a race car, good for you. I'm never yeah. going to knock a guy for getting his value um, even though it may be an astronomical number, that's the market. That's not the player's that's fault. Right. That's not the, that's don't, right. don't hate the player because he's getting what he deserves out of his share. 
So I think that's great. But you, you brought us directly forward into this NASCAR conversation, talking with Brad Doherty, a winning car owner, not just a car owner, but you've invested your name, your likeness, your money, your blood, sweat, and tears into NASCAR. You've been, it's yeah. been well documented how much you love motorsports. Yes. Um, so I'm going to go, before we get into the business of it, I want to talk about that day. Because I'll right. never forget, when I became a crew chief, I'll never forget that afternoon in Martinsville where I watched the car I crew chief come off turn four first with Jeff Gordon behind the wheel. And I was then a winning crew chief. Everything sure. I've ever wanted to do in my life was that moment. Yeah. So then here you are as a team owner. And I love the video. What was yeah. it like to see your car win yeah. at the absolute premier level of stock car racing? All right, let's, let's go back just a little bit. So I got into late model stock racing back in the mid eighties with, with Robert Presley. And we won, man, we won like three or four different track championships. Uh, right. We won Greenville and Asheville and all that stuff. So I got a taste of that, had a lot of fun. I was actually in the truck series back in the mid nineties. And so what happened, uh, I, was, uh, I was in the car business for a number of years, about 20 years in Cleveland with a guy named Jim Herrick, uh, the car bet man, not the basketball guy. We were partners and this was mid nineties. Dennis Huth, who you may remember, who used to work with NASCAR and got, yep. you know, took over ARCA, he called me one day and he said, man, he said, you've got to come down. And I lived in the off season in Ormond Beach. And, and so Brian France was my neighbor. That's how we became buddies. And Dennis was my neighbor. We all played basketball together uh, in the off season. While I played, they just kind of ran around and tried to stay out of the way. But uh, <laughs> So anyway, he says, we got this new series we're going to start, man. He says, you've got to get involved. It's an incredible series. It's, we're going to race trucks. And so I was like, okay. So I went down, took a look at it. It was great. I, I thought the truck looked pretty cool. I was a Ford dealer. We went to Ford, Jim and I, and we said, hey, man, we, we want to get into this truck deal. Uh, Jim had raced in the ASA series a little bit. And he said, we want to, we want to jump into this and, and go racing. So I partnered with Jim. And uh, I'd hired a guy named Tim Stevens. He was working at our car dealership. He was actually a basketball manager at DePaul at one time. But he's one of those people, Steve, that he just recognizes talented people. He's just mm -hmm. one of those guys. And so I told him, I said, man, we got to find somebody to drive this, this truck. And he said, uh, okay, I don't know anything about a race car. I said, well, look, I just, I'm going to give you a little money. I want you to spend a few weeks, just travel around the country, go to all these late model tracks, everywhere you can go, and come back and give me like three or four guys' names that I can look at that we can maybe put into this thing because we're starting new. Long story short, he, about two months later, he comes back. He's like, I got some guys. He said, all right. He said, I got this guy. He's an older guy. You know, he races a lot out of the Phoenix area. You know, Ron Hornaday Jr., really, really talented, but he's an older guy. Uh, you know, he races some uh, on the East Coast, but he's primarily a, a West Coast guy. I said, okay. He said, I got this guy up in the Northeast, man. He can wheel a race car. His name's Greg Biffle. He said he's a little rough, but, but we, you know, he's a guy I think we can talk to, and maybe we can, you know, get some of that roughness out of him. He might be great in a truck. I said, okay, well, I put his name down. The other name he had was a guy, it was Kenny Irwin Sr. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. Okay, so he's a sprint car guy up in Indianapolis. He said, we need to go take a peek at him. I said, well, how old is he if he's a senior? He's like, well, you know, he's middle 40s, but, man, he'd be great because he's a mature guy, good racer really need to take a look at it. Well, we were in Ohio. So we said, all right, we're going to go over and watch him run a sprint car. So we go over and lo and behold, you know, they're running heat races and all this stuff and they run the feature. Well, his son kicks everybody's behind. And so we stay 
and watch him another night. And we're like, well, this is going to be awkward, but I want to talk to Kenny Irwin Jr. Right. And so we go, we talk to Kenny, good looking guy, young guy, hungry. And we say, we're going to test a truck at Richmond in about four weeks. You know, we've got a race team. We're building. Will you come over and just test for us? And he's like, a truck? What the heck is a truck? We, so we tell him all about it. So we go to Richmond. This is back when, you know, you could test, obviously. You remember those days. We're there on like a Wednesday, and we got Butch Miller. And Butch was driving the ASA car for Jim. So we put Butch in the truck, man, and he's out there tooling around. You know, Butch is great short track. He's getting around through the air. We're looking at his lap times. And, man, yeah, he's, he's pretty good. And we're basing him off the Bush series at the time. Excuse me, the expanded series at the time. And uh, he's pretty quick. And so we finish up with Butch. And we, we stay a couple of days. And Jim's like, man, I just think I want to put Butch in the truck. I said, let's just let Kenny. Let's see what this kid does when he gets in his truck. He, Kenny comes in the next day. We stick him in the truck. And we're talking to him. And we got Doug Rickard. Doug's with us. And so Doug's going to help us with our truck. And so – we're talking to Kenny, and he's like, okay, okay. You know, we're talking about the gearing in the truck and all this type of thing. So he goes out. He runs maybe five laps, you know, and he's just getting filled for the truck. He's like, man, this thing's really heavy. You know, it doesn't want to turn. <laughs> he's like, but and he's like, I'm going to go out and run some really hard laps. He's like, I'm going to run maybe ten real hard laps if I can. So we put some new sticker tires on. He goes out, man. His fourth lap in that truck. He runs the equivalent, the equivalency of maybe starting third in the Bush Series race. He's oh. that fast. Oh, boy. Oh, we're like, oh, Doug's like, oh, my God. So we get him to come in, and they're like, we don't need to run anymore, you know. So I come in. We talk to him and say, look, we're going racing here in about a month. We'd love for you to drive our truck. And he's like, well, I've got some commitments, but I, I will be able to come back. I'll run one race for you. Long story short, I'm sorry it's just so long, but he comes back. And we're at Richmond. We're going to Richmond to race. He sits on the outside pole. All right. Unbelievable. Uh, his buddy at the time, so Hornaday's on the pole at the time. So Hornaday had just moved over. We run three quarters of the race, end up blowing a motor. He run a top five all night long. And he gets out of that truck. He is so excited. He wants to go truck racing. So we signed him up immediately. The next year was 98. And we started that year. Uh, with the Liberty Ford truck. We were Liberty Liberty Ford was our dealerships. Right. And we go out that first year. We won two races. We won Texas with Kenny Irwin, and then we won the inaugural race at Homestead, uh, the same race that, that John Nemechek lost his life that day. Um, and so, and one of these times, I got to tell you the stories about how Kenny moved on and went to went to drive for Robert Yates and those guys. That's a long story. So, anyway, I, I got to put somebody else in my truck. Kenny's going, we're truck racing. So I looked at the little list, and there was a guy at the bottom of the list. His name was Kevin Harvick. I said, tell me about this Harvick kid. He's like, oh, man, he races in this little ratty town of Bakersville. He's like, I can't even believe I found it. He's like, my buddy Tim, he's like, I flew into L.A., and I drove to freaking Bakersville. He said, it's out in BFE. He said, but you know what? He said, he's a good athlete, and he's a really smart racer. He says, I don't know if he's the most talented guy I've ever seen, but he's really smart. I said, all right. I said, well, let's, let's give this guy a call. So he was running. He had run a race for uh, the, the Spears folks. He, that 75 truck, couple races, just messing around and, you know, didn't have a lot of success. So I called Kevin. I said, you know, man, why don't you come drive a truck for me and Jim? We think you got a lot of talent, a lot of ability. Come on to Charlotte. We'll figure out how to get you here. Tonight. So anyway, Harvick comes, ends up driving the truck for us for a year. We finished second, like, 
47 times. He was way better than the equipment we had. Did a great job for us. And then Childress slid him out the door. So anyway, won a couple races in the truck series. Had a lot of fun. And so I'm, I'm still truck racing. And my buddy Robert is racing for Tad and Jody now in yep. the Xfinity series and, and having a good time running the Kingsford car. And I started talking to Tad one day. And Tad said, man, he said, uh, you know, Robert's done a great job. He's getting older. He wants to go run trucks and retire. I need to find a driver. And I was like, well, you know, what are you, what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? You want a, a mature guy? What do you, he's like, I want to run two teams. He's like, but I need some help. He said, I can't do it by myself. He said, and I really want to just throw it out there. Would you be interested in helping me put this thing together? He said, I don't want you to do any crazy heavy lifting. I know you're busy. He said, but I could really use your, your acumen because you, you, you've been around this crap a long time and you get it. I said, I'd love to. So we, we partnered up and we went out and started looking for drivers, ended up with Kelly Byers. And then we got, we found, we ran across to Marcus Ambrose. Mm -hmm. okay. So he'd been in those, he'd been those V8 supercars and he wanted to come over here and race. And he was going to be a Ford development guy, but, and we, had, we were running Fords originally because Tad originally was with the Wood Brothers. Right. And then that, that deal went sideways. And so Marcus's deal went sideways. So Marcus was just kind of out there. We said, Man, we're gonna go. We're gonna run a nationwide deal for two years, and then we're gonna go cup racing. And you're our guy. So he jumped in, and man, we went to Watkins Glen, and uh, I think we won. I think we won three in a row with Ambrose in that race car. Yep. Uh, at oh, Watkins yeah. Glen, he was unbelievable. Uh, threw him in the cup car. You know, had to qualify in at Indy. It was an exciting day for us. Got in on speed. Uh, raced pretty well. And then uh, we went to Watkins Glen with him again in that cup car. And he was a bear. And we knew we had something. Uh, and we raced and raced and raced, came so close, had Sonoma won. He cut the stupid car off, you know, going uphill there. He, yep. he had him, you know, Jimmy ends up winning. Had all kinds of stuff happen like that. Uh, Ford comes back in the picture and uh, made him a crazy offer. So he left us. And we were just trying to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, we get, you know, Bobby Labonte, who's always been a great friend and a good guy. We asked Bobby to come in and just help us continue to build our program. We needed someone that just wasn't going to wreck race cars, to be honest with you. Right. And Bobby moved forward wreck wrecking stuff. Yeah, exactly. And Bobby's not going to wreck race cars. So we started looking at it. And we're trying to figure out how to do this thing. And, okay, and, and we're looking at budgets. We, we want to be, you know, at the time, we've got about 45 people, which is a lot for a small team. And, you know, and, and at that time, you know, the budgets were – the big cup teams were spending 18, 19, something like that. And we were spending about nine, nine, eight or nine, which is a lot. And so we started looking at this thing. We like, you know, we have a, a marketing company that Tad and I kind of started together, and it was making money. We were using the, the racing platform uh, to, to, to market some product and do some things. Uh, we ended up, Tad and I, developing a piece of software that's a marketing-based software. Uh, that did really well. So our company was growing, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm telling Tad, you know, we've got to be careful because we want to grow our race business, but you don't ever want to get to the point where you're spending money out of our, our business business to run a race business. That, that's not how you do it. He's like, I agree. So he's brilliant, by the way, as everyone in that garage knows when it comes to marketing. He oh, started yeah. really working on leveraging some of our, our business stuff that we have on our marketing side into some of these, these, these really large 
stores that specialize in small package consumer goods. Uh, you know, the, the places people like Little Debbie and, and Clorox, Kings for Clorox, and we you know went through Walmart, had great relationship there. Lo and behold, all of that worked out, and Kroger came calling, and they knocked on our door. They liked the way we did some of our business models and, and how it really improved, you know, some of their, it would improve some of their business incrementally in some of their weaker markets. And they also loved racing, and they wanted to see if we could pair it all together. Well, we eventually did, so we ended up with double the budget that we had. But the whole thing was to not try to just throw it all in a race car because we never wanted to try to become that 800 pound gorilla. Cause as you know, it, it, be careful what you ask for in this business. So you think a seven foot basketball player eats a lot of calories. <laughs> you can see what a 700 pound gorilla race team eats a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. I worked well, at one for 20 years. You know, you know very well. I couldn't so, burn it. I, you couldn't burn money as fast as we could spend yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And so we got into these deals and started looking at things and we're like, where do we want to be? So in the race business, as you know, uh, in today's race world, especially, you know, you can't, you don't get to control your motor part, you know, program. It's just, it, you know, with the domestic car business being the way it is, it's just not going to happen. Right. But the one thing that we were been able to do is we said, once we got to this point is uh, we want to build our own race cars and control our sheet metal, and do all that stuff. So we've got that figured out. Going back though, we had to get a driver after Ambrose left and after Bobby left and uh, AJ was available, AJ Allmendinger. And so he had gone through some stuff and, and had gone through the, some programs at NASCAR and, and was looking to get back on his feet. And we've always loved AJ, great guy. I thought he was really talented. And so uh, we called him, said, hey, man, you know, what, what do you think about driving this race car? And he, uh, he wanted to do it. And he came in and uh, did a great job for us and, and drove the wheels off that race car everywhere we went. And then uh, you get back to that big day. We're at Watkins Glen and I'm, I'm working the broadcast with Rusty Wallace and, and, uh, and Alan Bestwick and all those guys. And we're racing. And, and Marcus Ambrose that day, obviously, was the favorite. He was the favorite every time we went. Because you, you beat that guy. You're, you're doing something. Yeah, I couldn't. Uh, I tried. Yeah, he, I couldn't. He, Not in a road a, course. He's a bear, man. Uh, but I figured something out about Marcus. I spent a lot of time with him. And I was actually – running some stuff. This is crazy. I know it's going to sound crazy. So I was running late models. I'd run Tri-County and Hickory and Myrtle Beach. And then I was going over racing in the NASA series. I was road racing. And we were running Thunder Roadsters, which was awesome. I built my own Thunder Roadster from the ground up. I had the guys at the race shop at the time. I had Todd Barrier working for me. So he built me a really, really slick Roadster. Yeah. That thing was really, <laughs> if you know what I mean, that thing was really, really fast. And uh, we ran Hayabusa engines, so they would, they would haul ass. So I went to Kershaw one day to, to practice. I had to go down and test because we were going to run the Daytona road course. Yeah. So Ambrose, I took Ambrose with me every time I'd go down there. And he would get in the car, and we'd go out, and I'd run laps with him and just follow him, and then he'd follow me, and we'd run hundreds of laps. And I figured something out. Uh, we got in a late model down there, and I, I know you've been down there. You know, as you go through that kink. Yes. You know, he kept telling me, he said, I want you to know, because I'd go through the kink and I'd go into it wide open, but I would, I'd be out of control. You know, it was just more stupid than I was ability. And he told me that day, he said, in every slow spot on the road course, you have to make ground. And so I figured him out after being around him. That's where he got people. Now, he's going to get you in the, 
the bus stop and the camp. But you watch, you go back and watch him. Everywhere that people are breaking and slow or coming up to speed is where he passes. That's yeah. where he got to. Yeah, his That's breaking is um his breaking oh. is oh. is unbelievable. Oh. He's unbelievable. People would be getting into the corner, you know, with with a thousand pounds of brake pressure. He'd be at three hundred pounds. Because mm -hmm. he 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 told me, don't ever bind that car up when you're braking. He says people get in, they will hop, they do all that stuff because they're they're missing the corner. He says always make sure you are have the least amount of brake pressure. You keep those wheels rotating in that corner. So I just learned a lot. So when I got to AJ and we're talking, and I'm like, look, man, you know. We know what we got to do. I told AJ that day, I said, you're the best road racer in the business. Just just be sure throughout the day, we're going to run up front just because you're talented. And we know who we got to beat. But I said, he told, you know, Ambrose's thing is the low speed areas of the racetrack. And AJ's like, I got it. I got it. And, and that day, man, we get down to those last 10 laps, and Ambrose was using people up. And he had actually gotten tangled up with someone. I don't know if it was Burton or someone. And had to go back to like the end of the tail end of the lead lap. And it was only like 12, because there's only like 12 cars on the lead lap. And we were like, okay, we got a chance. Uh, we still got to beat Jimmy. We still got to beat Jet. You know, we, we got a chance, right. but we got to beat these guys. We just can't make mistakes. Oh, man, they dropped that green flag with about 10 laps to go. And man, Ambrose was coming. Oh, my goodness. He was using people up. He, it was eight. It was eight tires every corner, man. He, and he was body And I'm sitting there, and Andy Petrie's sitting across from me, and I'm like, I'm just like, you know, I'm shaking my head. And Andy's like, All right, Brad, come on, man, be positive, be positive. I said, I am being positive. I'm being realistic. This guy's coming like a freight train. We get down to that last two laps, and there he is. I look up, and he's right on our bumper. We go down into one. You know, everybody gets them bound up. You know, AJ gets on the brake on the inside really well. Ambrose is on the outside. And AJ, AJ slips just a little bit. And I'm like, oh, man. And Ambrose, I was hoping he could kind of run him down to the gators a little bit, you know, because that corner runs out pretty quick, you know. Yeah. I'm like, if he could just pinch him down there, man. I don't think Marcus will wreck him on this lap. Now, he'll wreck him on the last lap. But he ain't going to wreck him here. Well, he Marcus gets all the way up to – he gets side by side coming off that corner. And he body slams AJ. And they go up through the hill, man, and they are booking. You can, I mean, they are gapping people. They're getting after it. And I'm watching this. They get down through. They go down the back. They get through the bus stop. And AJ pull, or Marcus pulls ahead. And I remember telling Peter, I said, well, that's it, man. I just We're going to finish second. And then all of a sudden, I look up, and AJ pulls right back up to his door and body slams him a little bit and, and just knocks the, the wheel slightly loose in Marcus's hand. You can see him go like that. And AJ's able to just lurch ahead. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, man. No, I'm going to have a heart attack on national TV. I'm losing my mind. And I'm trying to be professional because, you know, I don't I – don't, I, that's one thing. I don't even want to talk about my race team. I don't want to do that. I just want to do my thing. But I'm sitting there, and I'm about to lose my bananas. We come around through there, man. He gets down on that back step, that long straight before you come down and take a checkered flag. And he just – he's letting her eat, you know. And back then, we could let him eat because we had all that power. And he's letting her eat, and Marcus can't quite get back to his rear – bumper i was i was praying man because i knew if he got to him he was going to turn him and it'd be a bad wreck and it'd be a terrible day and we beat him we beat him so now i'm sitting there thinking oh my goodness we just want a cup race this is the hardest thing on the planet to do people have no idea so guys like you who won all those cup races 
and, and, and go to the racetrack and kick everybody's butt. People have no idea how hard it is to start on Thursday and to end up Sunday holding that trophy. How many things have to go right? Oh, and absolutely. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, and man, I was so excited. I never forget. I'm trying to be composed. I'm on the headset. And uh, producer comes over. He's like, man, go ahead. Go to Victory Lane. So I go tearing out of there. I go down to Victory Lane. Man, we're oh, I'm jumping around. I see Helton. I grab Helton. I yank him up. And he's like, oh, don't hurt me. And I get to Victory Lane. And AJ's out of the car. And I grab AJ. And he's patting on. And I'm like, man, I'm so proud of you. He's like, Brad. He's like, Brad. I'm like, what? He's like, will you put me down? I'm a grown man. I look like, <laughs> like you're walking around. You're holding me like I'm a little kid. Put me down. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, man. Oh. And, and oh. But, Steve, the thing that was great was Rick Hendrick and Richard Childress and Richard Petty and Roger Penske and all those guys came down and hugged my neck and said, way to go. Way to go, Brad. This is awesome. We're so proud. Of you. And, and it, you know, and that to me meant more than anything. Because, yeah, you know, I, I know those guys, but I don't know those guys. And they're doing their thing. I'm doing my business. I'm just an old guy trying to – we're trying to race and have fun. I'm a racer at heart. And, and to have those guys come down before they go jump on their jets and haul the boogie and say, man, this is awesome. This is great for our sport. We're proud of you. What a great day. You guys did a great job. No feeling like it in the world, ever. And, and you know, it's, um, it, it's to your point, those men that you just mentioned, they want to beat you more than anything there is, but they also respect the work it takes to get there. And I think yeah. that's, there, there's that mutual level of respect when it comes to ownership. So, Brad, um, it's been great. We're talking to Brad Doherty. Uh, I don't want to take up much more of your time, but there's one thing I think we have to talk about. It's the biggest news that's come to NASCAR. Uh, it's really been a huge news year. We got a new schedule. We got road courses on it. Michael Jordan's coming in with Denny Hamlin. Uh, we've <laughs> yeah. seen NASCAR make a make a. And I've labeled it as have made great decisions in 2020 for humanity and morality. They didn't put dollars and cents in front of the direction that they wanted their sport to go. They wanted mm -hmm. to be inclusive for anybody that wanted to take part. I think they had no idea where that could open up for doors. And lo and behold, I think that was perhaps the final door that allowed. Michael Jordan, Denny Hamlin to walk through and to join a, on the ownership rank. So as someone who lived in the NBA, mm -hmm. transferred to the car side, and you know how hard it is to be an owner, <laughs> talk about Michael's involvement and perhaps what it's going to mean to you as a guy who owns another team in the same sport. Yeah, so he uh, – it's funny. He reached out to me a few days ago and said, you know, I want to talk a little bit about – the hurdles and, and some of the things I, I, I can anticipate. And I told I said, well, you should have asked me about this about three weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're in now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's uh, – yeah, we it, it, 2020 has been incredible in a lot of ways, just stuff we've dealt with and NASCAR's leadership and the, the direction we're going with the sport, becoming all-inclusive and uh, all of those things are just fabulous things that have happened in such a, a tumultuous time. Uh, but with Michael, you know, it's been – he's always loved racing. We always talk racing. And uh, he would always he, – he, he would always wear me out. He'd be like, man, how come your cars aren't running back? Y'all finished 20th today. Why'd you finish? I was like, you just have no idea. I tell, I, said, I know you're out there playing with your little motorcycles and stuff, and you guys running the top. I said, this ain't that. I said, these are the best race car drivers in the world driving the most difficult cars 
to race. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, how hard can it be to drive a, a stock car? I said, it's not hard. I said, they're not hard cars to drive. They're hard cars to race. Mm-hmm. And that's what I told him about the other day. I said, that's what you're going to find out. I said, and he said, oh, shit. He said, I never thought. I said, you know, and I just told him, you know, this deal, he's got a he, – he's coming in full force. And he wants to see Bubba uh, Wallace be successful. He's going to do whatever it takes to get behind that. Denny's his buddy. He wants Denny. Denny wants to transition someday into to car ownership. He wants to help support that and, and, and help that ball get rolling. But I, I've told him, it's not going to happen now. It's, it's got to be a five-year commitment to, to see what's going to happen. And he's like, you don't think we can come in and, and, and with Joe Gibbs or whoever and, you know, to pick up the mantle? And I said, listen, this is the deal in this sport. And we on the media side sometimes don't do it. We do it a disservice because I do it, I do it, you do it, everybody does. I said, when you look at these race cars, say one to 36, I said, you know, the reality is there's probably out of those 36, maybe three to five cars equipment wise that don't have what we would call the best equipment. I said, but if you look at those cars one through 25, they're really close. So it's not about what you can buy pieces and parts. It's intellectual capital. And that's what I tried to explain. I said, you know, we've got 120 people on our little bitty race team. Okay. And I said, I've got 10 engineers to work, but I'm, I'm racing against, you know, Mr. Hendrick. I'm racing against Mr. Penske, Joe Gibbs. They've got 60 people. They got 60 engineers sitting over there. So I said, the difficulty is going to be in, who puts their hands on that race car, where the, the input comes from on that race car. You can take all the information. You can take Kevin Harvick's race car and go out there and, and sit it on the racetrack right now and put Bubba Wallace in that race car. And, uh, and he's not going to win that race. He, yeah. he, 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 he doesn't understand that. Right. So, uh, but, but I, I think he's in it for the long haul. And it's going to take, you know, he's got to be in it for about five years before, He's going to see the fruits of his labor. And I told him it's, it's expensive. And he's got more money than any of us. But he, he's trying to understand that. He, he, he right. doesn't quite understand spending 30, 40, 50 million a year not getting a return on it other than a trophy possibly. So uh, I told you, know, this is about racers. The people that do this, we're racers. And uh, we're not making a living doing this. Uh, I go racing because I want to go racing. And when – Tad and Jody and those guys decide they're done racing, man. I, I hope I'll, I'll be doing TV or maybe I'll have a late model team or I'll have a go-kart team. I'm going to race forever. I love racing. And so I, ho- I hope he gets that, that the bug bites in that bag because it, it's great right. for our sport to have guys like that. And we want to see more guys, Steve. We need more young guys, young owners who are capable of coming in financially and surviving. Yeah, the new car is coming in 22. I'm a big believer um, that if that really accomplishes some of what it's intended to accomplishment as far as, I'm not going to say close the gap, but what I, what I am going to say is makes it perhaps a little more easy to understand for yeah. a sports or a businessman, right? Brad, if yes. you come in, you understand racing. But if someone who doesn't and they want to go to, Ooh. you know, if Mark Cuban called me and said, okay, let's start a race team, it's pretty hard to explain how it works now where I'm hoping that 22 car goes, well, this is what you buy. This is what we build. You know, I think it perhaps might clear it up 
for hopefully new ownership. I agree with you. A, a new wave of young owners um, would be great. Perhaps another OEM. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Man, Brad, yeah. listen, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. I enjoy, um, I've seen you on TV forever. We finally got to work together a few weeks ago. I had so much fun doing it. Um, Same here. Awesome. And then I think that was the day where I'm like, man, he's just a cool dude. I want to sit down and learn so much about him. I still, so where's your handicap? Let, let's just cut to the real important stuff. What's your handicap? Where is it staying so, right now? I will give it this. I am the best seven-foot tall golfer in the world. That is my fame to claim, or claim to fame. Yeah. Uh, I'm like a 5'9 index, but I can't play to it. I, I played yesterday in the gangster and I shot 76, but I made a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm so tall, and, and fortunately, Davis Love was one of my roommates in college with Michael and those guys. And I didn't get the ball, golf bug until late, but I've talked to him about the golf swing out there. I love to play, but, man, when I don't play a lot and I have gaps off, it's bad. I mean, I go from a six handicap to a six, to, it's bad. But I still love to play. I talk more jump than anyone, and, we, and I have a lot of fun. So I look forward to getting it out knocking it around with you, man. You give me some shots. And uh, give me some advice. Give you some shots. Listen, he's a true golfer. Golf. He's working on the bet before we get to the first tee. That's <laughs> a true golfer. Car, I need race car advice. I ain't worried about golf. <laughs> <laughs> Brad, man, I've had an absolute blast. Um, um, it's so much fun to talk to you. I love working with you. It's great. Uh, I love that you're involved in the sport. I agree with you. Michael's great. I'm glad he's here. And Rick Hendrick's great. But in the end, I like to see passion. That's what you uh, Jody, Tad, everyone over there at JTG Doherty has. I can see it with the product you put on the racetrack. Uh, and I loved covering it on Saturdays and Sundays. So, man, this conversation has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you joining me, buddy. Hey, man, thanks for having me. You're awesome to work with. Uh, your knowledge is just incredible. A lot of fun to listen to, even when I'm working with you. So uh, it's been a treat. Look, look forward to doing much more with you. And uh, thanks for having me, man. This has been fun. It has been a blast. This has been another Latart on location. Review, rate, subscribe. Let us know what you think. You can get this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.